Hey, everybody. It is Finn again with Glenn at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We're so glad that you have tuned in and downloaded or otherwise absconded with a digital copy of this podcast. And we have with us again today, Dr. Barry Whittemore, because the, the conversation we had about Appalachia was so good last time, I uh, wanted to bring him back and address something that is near, if not dear, to I think both of our hearts and something we have both lived with and through for part of our life, which is the stereotypes of Appalachia. To, to be somewhat controversial, all stereotypes have some basis in truth, but sometimes they get so far away from the truth that they're no longer applicable. So let's just jump right in. Uh, Dr. Whittemore, what are, your, what are you, some of your quote unquote favorite stereotypes? I guess it's probably the, um, the Appalachian uh, graduate student at a good university. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, University of North Georgia, UT, you know, you know places like that. No, uh, seriously, it's just, you know, they all make me kind of roll my eyes. There are just so many of them. But it has a lot to do, actually, with why there is such a thing as Appalachian Studies and one of the things that got me into it. There were, you know, a lot of us, you know, back in the 70s and 80s and 90s and beyond who were constantly confronted with that stereotype. And I was admittedly raised in the flatlands in a city, but, but I would see the stereotype and I'd say, you know, that is not my grandmother. You know, right. that's not my people, you know, what the heck is going on here? And a lot of us ended up going into it. I mean, even when I was in graduate school the first time, I took a course in Appalachian Studies, and we were reading books. I was going, no, nope. I know that part of the country. I'm from that part of the country, and that's not the way life is there. So we really start off as just almost like a counter movement to this negative stereotype. And it's been there for a long time. I would say it's been there since the country's been around. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a historical trajectory, and, and there's a pretty defining time when it becomes sort of a popular or dominant stereotype. And it's not till around the turn of the last century. And what drove that? Money. <laughs> <laughs> Please elaborate. <laughs> well, you know, there's always, you know, when we think of the United States, we tend to think of it as North and South. But in the early history, it was East and West as much as anything. Uh, the coast versus the mountains or, you know, beyond the first ridge. And there are always people, you know, sort of the coastal elites, so to speak, right. who disparaged uh, people who were further inland. I mean, William Byrd was writing about this in, in the 1600s. And actually, in our area, we, we see the beginnings of it in the early 1860s. Most of the delegates from North Georgia to the secession convention voted against secession. Of course, then all the delegates were made to swear allegiance to the Confederacy uh, once they did vote right. to secede. But there was this suspicion of people uh, south of here that we were somehow unreliable. So you find the people in, say, Dahlonega, you know, they had ties to the southern part of the state saying, oh, no, it's not us. You know, we're loyal to the Confederacy. We're good Georgia people. It's those other people back up in the mountain. They're the problem. We're okay. They're not. But it doesn't really take hold until well after the uh, Civil War. I mean, one of the things that happens is Appalachia gets discovered. I mean, there was just sort of this big blank spot on the map, and people didn't make much attention to it because it was too mountainous. 
But during the war, you know, as, as armies come through, they include engineers and geologists and business people. And they recognize the southern and central Appalachia is this giant prime growth hardwood forest, you know, zillions of board feet of timber just waiting to be harvested and hauled off because the rest of the country had cut down a lot of their trees. And that there were these huge seams of coal. So it's like, great, let's go exploit these resources. But there were people living there. Now, in the past, that wasn't a problem because the people who were living somewhere we wanted to go were uh, Native American, and we didn't mind running them off. We got really good at exploiting people of color. You know, we didn't mind enslaving Africans. We didn't mind, just halfway facetious here, we, you know, we didn't mind, you know, wiping out Native Americans. I mean, after the Spanish-American War, we didn't mind going in and taking over the Philippines and saying, you little brown people don't know how to run a country, but we do. But people in Appalachia overwhelmingly we're very, very white. And, and so how do we exploit these white people who look just like us? So the trick was to make them the other. And, and there's two ways you can do that. Like all the process of otherization. One is you can romanticize them. Go, oh, look at those people up in the mountains. Aren't they cute with their you know, sunbonnets and their dulcimers and their apple butter? But gosh, they sure are isolated and behind the times. We need to bring them up to speed. Uh, in fact, one of the early presidents of Berea College wrote a, a very influential article called Our Contemporary Ancestors. These are our ancestors. These people are the past. They're our past, but they're in the past. So, you know, they're going to need to be fixed. The other way to otherize a, a population is to demonize them. And so all of a sudden, the people who were the heroes of King's Mountain, you know, the Davy Crockett's and Daniel Boone's of the world, were these dark, dangerous, violent, gun-toting, moonshine-swilling, incestuous, ignorant hillbillies, and we needed to bring law and order to this region. I even saw the phrase law and order in a uh, promotional pamphlet for <laughs> a large lumber company from upstate New York wow. buying hundreds of thousands of acres uh, in, in southern Appalachia. And, and people were willing to buy into this because this is the late 18, early 1900s. This is the second industrial revolution. So we need a lot of coal you know, to, to fuel that industrial revolution. And we needed a lot of workers too. Well, these workers were coming mostly from Europe, but it wasn't, they weren't coming from the British Isles in Germany and France like we were used to. They were coming from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe and they seemed different. Oh, those people are very different, right? <laughs> yeah, self-promoting Anglo-Saxons in America. Right. And so there was this fear that if we let in these, I mean, they, they were white, but were they really white? If you're Italian or if you're, you know, Polish or you're, you're a Russian Jew or something like that, and that these people were going to destroy America. But then we had these people in Appalachia who, who Teddy Roosevelt, bless his heart, great president. Um, he was a lousy historian, but he fancied himself one. And he talked about the people in Appalachia who were 110% Anglo-Saxon. And, and there was a notion at that time that there was a, such a thing as Anglo-Saxon values. And it was things like freedom, democracy, liberty, you know, that the Anglo-Saxons had that and other people didn't. And this influx of people was going to destroy our values. <laughs> you know, sound right. familiar. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, the so, side note, you see that that's how you see the British start to interpret the Norman Conquest, right? Oh yeah, the, the Anglo-Saxons were, were noble and freedom-loving and uh, egalitarian, and then the Normans come and ruin it all for a thousand years. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> what we see created around that time, a lot of by local color writers, as they were called, um, you know, people who did a local color. I mean, Mark Twain was one of that school. He wasn't doing it. But there are others who started writing these stories, these novels and novelettes about Appalachia, and they were pretty dark, paid a really ugly picture. The prime example, I would say, would be John Fox Jr., well-educated um, bluegrass Kentuckian, and, and all of his novels seem to follow the same trajectory. A lot of them weren't even novels, they were novelettes. The Trail of the Lonesome Pine, The Cumberland Vendetta, The Young Engineer from the Bluegrass. <laughs> goes into Appalachia, you know, to, you know, Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia, somewhere in that area to, you know, help, you know, civilize the area with mines or railroads or something like that. When he gets there, he meets the, the beautiful mountain maiden and they fall in love and it looks like it's going to work out okay, but then there's the father, the dark uh, force, um, you know, his, his vile and violent family and they come between them. It doesn't work out. The guy ends up going back to the bluegrass and marries a nice sort of bourgeois middle-class girl and lives happily ever after. And it was this idea that there was these people who were isolated. The whole idea of isolation was part of it. Because if we were isolated, then we might be backwards and, you know, we, we might revert. Um, I mean, even as late as the 1930s, uh, the famous British historian, Arnold Toynbee, you know, did this multi-volume history of the world. Mm -hmm. And in it, he, he proposes what he calls sort of the Ulster model. It, it was the challenge and um, response that, you know, a people would meet a challenge and they would respond to the challenge and improve. Ironically, his example <laughs> of good is Northern Ireland. <laughs> so, yeah, the Scots go to Northern Ireland, they subdue the wild Irish, and they become this great and noble and industrious people. And everyone's happy and there's no wars at the end. Yeah, and you know, there's, yeah, there's, <laughs> this is before the time of troubles. Uh, but then he says these same people go to America, to the wilderness of Appalachia, to try to you know, subdue the wild Indian, but the challenge is too great. They don't meet the challenge and they fail. And literally in his words, they lose their civilization and become what he called white barbarians. And he lists some other ethnic groups that he considers in that part. And, and this was one of the most respected historians in the English-speaking world. And this was just accepted as normal. Of course, if, if people in Appalachia are that bad, then, you know, we're bringing the blessings of civilization when we, you know, put in the railroad tracks uh, to, to take coal out. I mean, all the transportation in Appalachia was for the purpose of resource extraction. Right. Um, and take the wealth out. And we're going to be nice to them and give them jobs as coal miners and, and you know, lumberjacks temporarily. But it comes over into the larger culture after that, and it starts showing up everywhere, and it, it is persistent. I've seen cartoons, children's cartoons, everything from Betty Boop to Bugs Bunny that, um, you know, have this, you know, portrayal of you know, these, these, these crazy mountaineers with their guns and fiddles and banjos and yeah, it's just right on up, you know, all the way to J.D. Vance, who's just about as bad as the rest of them. Right, and you know, it's it's funny you say that because you know we're you and I are of a, a 
different generation. Yeah. But I, I very specifically remember that my first, you know, I grew up in Appalachia, Southern Appalachia, yeah. in the mountains at the dead end of Hogback Road. Okay. <laughs> and so, but we, you know, we were civilized enough to have television. And my first exposure to the stereotype of Appalachia was that Bugs Bunny cartoon that you're talking about. <laughs> you know, we're both thinking of the same one where it's the two brothers and they're feuding and Bugs Bunny gets in between them and dresses like a girl. And I remember watching that thinking, huh, this is hilarious. I wonder who that's supposed to be. <laughs> and, you know, and eventually, you know, mom explained to me, well, that's, <laughs> that's what they think we are. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we who. <laughs> <laughs> So, and, and, you know, that was, that was my, like I said, that was my first exposure to not only what that negative stereotype of Appalachia is, you know, it was my first exposure, not, not just to that stereotype, but to suddenly feeling like that stereotype was being applied to me very specifically, personally, and individually. And, you know, that began a, that began to make a little bit of difference in how I saw the world and myself, but, but fortunately being, being a, you know, to use the positive stereotype of that Scotch Irish stock, being accused of such a thing just made me quite upset and angry to show that that was not the case. And I got all riled up. Well, you yeah, haven't been, been, been raised in a city, you know, in the flatlands. I was able to be, you know, just kind of ignored and not pay much attention to it. The older I got, and, and especially when I started, you know, you know, graduate school and just like, this isn't right, you know, and I began yeah. to see the patterns of discrimination, the incredible exploitation of Appalachia, where it is a virtual mineral colony, you know, where people come in and they, you know, on this side of the Great Valley, they take the gold and the timber, and on the other side of the Great Valley, they take the coal and the timber. And, and the people are left impoverished uh, and, and, you know, lose control of their land. And I think, you know, this, this is a great injustice. And so, you know, that got me all riled <laughs> and, uh, you know, and involved. And, you know, it, it, it's still going on. You know, you know, people, you know, you know, try to use us and make these assumptions and just annoys the living hell out of me that they will make the assumptions that we are just, you know, lesser. And, and I experienced it actually in my 30s in graduate school. As I always like to say, you don't have an accent when you're home. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and I never had much of an accent. I don't think I have one at all. You know, my relatives, you know, when I was a kid made fun of me because I, I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, which is a Navy town. So, we, you know, didn't have, you know, there was so many people from all over the place. I didn't really develop a strong accent. But when I went to study for my doctorate in, in, in Pittsburgh, you know, they thought I had one up there, and, and, and I ran into some just really odd thing. I remember going in, um, well, up there they have this what we call, what we call a bar culture, a tavern, you know, the neighborhood tavern culture, place where you go and maybe have dinner and, you know, get a beer. And I was there one night talking to this fella, and he asked me if I was a hoopie. And I said, hoopie? You know, I'd never heard this word before. And I said, oh, well, what's a hoopie? And he got all embarrassed. <laughs> So I pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. And finally, what I was, I was able to get out of it was that a hoopie was a West Virginian in particular or a Southern Appalachian in general. Of course, he, he thought I was a hoopie and he found out I was a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon and he sort of, you know, backtracked with it. So what, what does hoopie mean? I mean, what's the root of that? What is that? I mean? have no idea. You know, there's others I know, like, you know, you know, I know hunky, which is a, a 
popular derogatory term up there, you know, referred to mill workers and all, and that comes from Hungarian. Yeah. But no, it's just, you know, I've never heard that. You know, I heard it a few other times afterwards, but, um, you know, it, it's there and, and people make assumptions about you, you know, as soon as you open your mouth. <laughs> uh, exactly. And you know this, but I want to explore it just a little bit. The, mm-hmm. you know, entire careers and dissertations have been built around defending Appalachian culture and, and trying to restore a balance and trying to explain why so many people are accepting of the portrayal of Appalachia in the movie Deliverance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, you know, I've, I've heard some people argue, and I wouldn't push it too far, but I would tend to agree with them that that movie has probably done more ill for us in the 20th century than anything else. Late 20th century, yeah. for, for sure. Of course, I would argue that 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 movie shows how stupid people from suburban Atlanta are. (laughs) (laughs) To all of our Atlanta listeners, you're just going to have to accept that as the God's truth. But yeah, so I mean, just talk a little bit about, if if you can, if you would, about that movie, about its critical response, and about the response of formal Appalachian studies from graduate students at Carnegie Carnegie Mellon and how they dealt with that. Well, I've tried to avoid the movie as much as I can. You know, I, I know it, it, it's, it's a turning point and it's a touchstone for a lot of people. I've also played a little banjo every once in a while. And, you know, it's like, you know, paddle faster, I hear banjos. You know, it comes right in with a stereotype. And, and it, it just sort of plays into that idea that there are these, you know, isolated, violent, incestuous people who um, have all kinds of, you know, deformities, mental and otherwise, who live up there and, and that they are wild and dangerous people, unlike, you know, the good people coming up from the suburbs to go, uh, go canoeing. But it just fits right in. I mean, it, it keeps coming back over and over. You know, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, which is just, that's the one that's coming in for all the anger now. Yeah. Uh, J.D. Vance um, <laughs> made the mistake of showing up at an Appalachian Studies conference and was damn near run out of town on a rail. I mean, there, there, there was a, 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 a vociferous and very pointed protest against him being there because he was just resurfacing the stereotype. And that stereotype even developed into, you know, into academia. It's, um, there was something called the, the subculture of poverty model for understanding uh, groups of people. And a lot of it was used on like African-Americans who lived in the inner cities, but it was applied to, um, to Appalachia as well. Sometimes very well-meaningly, you know, I think of the war on poverty, but when those folks came in and those pictures, you know, showed up in Look magazine, it was like, oh, look at those, you know, backwards benighted people. And, and I think one of the curious things about the stereotype and, and one of the reasons it lingers on even today and maybe even especially today, it became unpopular in the United States, it, it, at least up until the last couple of years, to be racist to belittle ethnic groups. You know, we, we can't tell black jokes. You know, we you know, can't, can't, can't tell those Polish jokes anymore. You know, we can't do this stuff because it's just not, it's not appropriate. But there seemed to be uh, what more than one of us have called the last acceptable stereotype. And you could go after Southern white male Appalachians and you can make jokes about them and make fun of them. And people laughed at the jokes and nobody chided you for doing it. So there, there's this sort of sense that, you know, we're the safe people to make fun of. 
It's just really curious because, you know, if you want an all-American group of people, you know, Appalachia is a good place to go look for them. How do you fight that general American you, and even more specifically, as a professor who works in an Appalachian Studies program, and that's the classes you teach, how do you, how do you not just defeat it, but how do you make other, quote, the other people understand? <laughs> Let me answer that in two parts. I have an answer to one and sure. not an answer to the other part. One, you know, as an educator, you know, one of the reasons I'm an educator is because I believe in education. And, you know, I know it's affected me because, you know, I grew up with, I grew up in the South in the 1950s. <laughs> being a Southern white male, I grew up with stereotypes. Uh, being a person of the 1950s, I grew up with stereotypes. And I eventually learned better, frequently from um, personal experience, but then was able to broaden that and to, to, to have a more inclusive view of the world a more accepting view of the world and to sort of glory in differences rather than make fun of them. So I try to educate people, <laughs> you know, I say, well, you know, this, this is what it's really like and this is where it came from and offer them a, a really positive view and, and show them all the good. How we change people. Oh God knows. I wish I had the answer <laughs> to that. Um, I really don't now just hopefully over time because I, you know, I'm old enough to have seen change <laughs> in my life. Um, but then, too, sometimes we think we've seen change and all of a sudden it seems to go away. You know, I thought racism was on, on the wane. But in, in the last, actually, 12 years, I've seen it come back much more so than it was, you know, say, 20 years ago. We never know. But, you know, we, we, we do see, you know, sometimes in a younger generation, a, a more accepting uh, group of people. I find my, my, my students much more open-minded than a lot of my age peers and, you know, that kind of gives me hope. And so I, that's why I work with them and just, you know, let the geezers go. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm probably not going to be able to change them, but maybe <laughs> I can have some influence. And, and so that's, that's what I try to do is just give them an honest, you know, real picture of the world. You know, the people who are doing Appalachian studies now, you know, at least at UNG, in my very limited experience, you can probably expound on this more. It's not just people from Appalachia and it's not people looking to become experts. They're they're, you know, we've got we've got the minor in the yeah. in the program and, and people are just interested. They're they're fascinated. They want to they don't only want to learn, they want to experience and understand. And I think I think that fits in a lot with the hope that you're talking about. Yeah, well, it struck me the first time I taught an Appalachian history class, the majority of the students were history education majors from North Georgia who wanted to go back to their home areas and teach. And they realized they didn't know their own history because it had never been taught to them. I think we, we joked a little bit the last time we talked about there are these people who seem to think, you know, you know Georgia ends you know, somewhere about the foothills. And growing up in Virginia, it was the same thing. You know, the joke there was that the people in Richmond thought Virginia ended at Roanoke. And you got another 100 miles you know, <laughs> after Roanoke. But it just seemed to be this forgotten area. And in fact, a lot of the early Appalachian scholars talked about Appalachia being the backyard of five or six states. It is sort of that, you know, it's, it's the, the southwestern part of Virginia or western Carolina or east Tennessee or north Georgia. I mean, the only wholly Appalachian state is West Virginia. So we always seem to be kind of left out. There's a curiosity about that. While I run into some of the students, some of them are just interested in like the environment and nature or they've heard about this place and, and they live in north Georgia and they want to know more about it. 
or sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's a regional studies program. So, you know, if you can study one region, then you can probably take those tools and apply it to another region if you want to study something else. The minor is useful in that way. But I think it's just some real curiosity about this part of America that they're aware of and they live in the edge of it and they don't know about it. It's interesting that, you know, they grew up surrounded by it, but they don't know it because they lived it. That's probably a, you know, a, a good stopping point because here we are, it's fall in Appalachia. And if there's any part of the country that welcomes that season, it is this place. <laughs> and it's beautiful. Uh, Dr. Whittemore, thank you for joining us today. This has been fantastic. Uh, I always love hearing with you. It feels like, uh, feels like talking to somebody from home when I've got you on here. So I appreciate it. <laughs> well, thank you. We will uh, we'll end there, folks. We hope you uh, keep joining us for the Then Again podcast. Where you can find it, you can download it on on our website. You can look at us up on Facebook. Uh, you can even watch some old videos on YouTube. But until the next time, we hope that you stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. We also hope you'll join us for our free weekly live stream programs on Facebook Live and YouTube Live every week at 2 p.m. Eastern. Just search for the Northeast Georgia History Center and we'll pop right up. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Our next members live stream is a virtual tour of the 18th century White Path Cabin here at the History Center. Digital memberships are as low as $3 a month or $35 a year, and you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Again, at www.negahc.org. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.